Good morning, I am Pastor Tim. Great to be with you this morning. Welcome, welcome. If you're visiting with us, super glad that you are here. I pray that you are blessed and encouraged. We are diving into a new sermon series this week as we look into our, our fall season of life groups and ministry time. And as we kick off this new sermon series, I want to begin with a question. When you think about Jesus, when you picture Jesus, how do you picture him? Some of you, immediately the first thing that comes to your mind is you picture Jesus kneeling. Right? Maybe he's kneeling to, to wash the feet of his disciples, but it's humble. Maybe he's kneeling to heal someone. Others of you picture him standing up. You picture him standing before great crowds of people proclaiming the truth of God's word, speaking piercing, heart-piercing truth to people in need. Others of you maybe picture him hanging on the cross as we just sung about. Broken, suffering, bearing your wrongs and your sins. Others of you picture, picture him in victory as we also just sung about. Maybe you picture him bursting out of the grave, right? Walking out in, in victory over sin, death, and the devil. But as we begin our series this morning in the book of Hebrews, here's what I want to call to your mind. The, the book of Hebrews again and again and again pictures Jesus sitting down. Maybe not what you would have first, first thought of, right? He's sitting down, not in a regular chair, but he's sitting down in a throne. Now, disclaimer, this is not the actual throne that Jesus is sitting on in glory in heaven, okay? This is just a, a replica, right? But the book of Hebrews pictures Jesus sitting on a throne. Eight times throughout the book are references to him sitting on a throne, the throne of glory. Chapter 1 says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Chapter 8 says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Chapter 12 says he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus not only seated on a throne, but seated at the right hand. The right hand of someone is a place of position and honor. The, the picture is God the Father sitting in, in the royal court and Jesus sitting in this place of honor and privilege and power, sitting next to him on the right side. And while the Bible doesn't say it, I like to think that maybe the Holy Spirit is sitting on the left side. I don't know. That's just a little theory. Now, here's the thing. We're Americans, right? So we read and we hear about like thrones and kings and royalty. We're like, well, what is that? We don't like that. We don't want that, right? We don't want thrones. We don't want kings. The closest thing that we have is the British monarchy, and we overthrew that 200 years ago. Right? Of course, that's been in the news this week. Um, I don't know if the Lord planned the timing of Queen Elizabeth's deaths to set me up for this morning or what, but um, so it has, right? Because, I mean, we, we, there hasn't been anything about a throne in the news for how long, and now this week, right? Everything is about Charles rises to the throne, Charles takes the throne, right? Queen Elizabeth, as you know, died at, at age 96. She reigned over the, the British kingdom for 70 years. And I've always sort of felt bad. Anybody ever feel bad for, for Prince Charles? I mean, he gets a bad rap for a lot of reasons. But I thought, man, here's a guy who, like, since he was a little kid, they've been telling him, someday you're going to be king, right? And he gets to be his 30th birthday, then his 40th birthday. Then his, he's like, am I ever going to? Come on, Mom. <laughs> like, you know, but finally, now, King Charles is, is king. Finally, he has taken the throne. The moment his mother passed away, and I'm sure there was deep sadness and sorrow, right? But, but immediately, he now becomes king of the British Empire. 
king of the kingdom. Finally, at age 73, he is finally now taking the throne. I don't, I don't know enough. I guess there's an actual throne somewhere in London. I don't know. I guess he sits down somewhere. I know there's a crown. Now, of course, his rule is going to look quite different than the rule of an ancient king would have. Picture in your mind for a moment an ancient kingdom where there were kings. And picture, if you will, a king ruling on his throne, sitting on his throne. When is it that a, that a king sits down on the throne? A king sits down when he's done. See, a king will go out and stand on the, on the palace balcony, and he will address his nation, right, and give a, a charge or a word of exhortation or give an update to the nation. And then when he's done, the king will sit down on his throne. A king at times will rise up and go out over the city. Maybe there's a construction project or the walls are being repaired and the king will go out and supervise the construction and maybe give orders and check in with his architects and his engineers. And, and when the building project is complete and when the king has surveyed and supervised and the work is done, then the king will go and sit down on his throne. Or kings in ancient times would lead their military into battle. They were the military commanders, and the king would, would for months and months, sometimes for years, would leave the capital city, would leave his throne and go out into battle, leading his army, leading the charge. But when the battle was won, when the war was over, when victory was his, the king would go back into the capital city in a royal parade, and he would climb the steps of the palace, and he would sit down. When the teaching is done, when the building is done, when the work is done, when the victory is accomplished, the king sits down. And this is how the book of Hebrews pictures Jesus sitting down on a throne because his task is completed and his work is done. And he is at rest, at peace, now reigning, reigning over his kingdom. Now, some of you might not like that. Some of you don't like that picture of Jesus sitting on a throne, right? It sounds ostentatious or it sounds distant. You're like, I, I prefer to picture Jesus sitting on the floor, right? Like he's a humble guy. I, I feel like I'm on the floor half the time. Can't Jesus sit on the floor next to me? Or others of you feel like, you know what, the, a throne is intimidating. It's unapproachable. Somebody sitting on a throne is not somebody that you're going to spend time with or or sit next to, right? Like in the movies, when a king is on a throne, you don't go sit in his lap and talk to him. In the movies, they, they keep their distance, right? And you stand, you know, and you bow down off at a, at a distance. But while Hebrews reiterates again and again this theme that Jesus is seated on a throne, we'll also find that the book of Hebrews urges us again and again to draw near. Eight times we're told to draw near to God. We're told to draw near with confidence, with full assurance of faith. We're told not to shrink back, but to go to him. See, here's the thing. Jesus, while he is seated on a, seated on a glorious throne, he's not distant from us. He's not separated from us. He's not a reluctant king sitting on some high lofty throne reluctant to give us good gifts. He's not an oppressive tyrant who's reigning in anger. He's not a distant ruler who is unable to identify with us. Because here's the thing, the throne that Jesus is seated on, listen, is a throne of grace. That's how the book of Hebrews describes it. Grace refers to God's unmerited favor, meaning the favor and love of God that you or I don't earn. God gives it because he's generous. 
And the throne that Jesus sits on is a throne made of grace and a throne from which he pours out grace. He abundantly gives grace to those who desperately need it. And so we are called again and again, draw near. Draw near to the throne of grace. Be with Jesus. Receive his grace. Receive the grace that you desperately need. And so here's our our theme verse, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a beautiful invitation. What a beautiful urging. Brothers, sisters, friends, new visitors, draw near. Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace because you and I need mercy and we need grace to help us in time of need. Some of you walked in here this morning or you woke up this morning, you maybe didn't articulate it this way, but you felt in your heart, I need mercy And some of you have this overwhelming weight of guilt and shame and you need forgiveness and you need hope. Draw near to the throne of grace. Some of you find yourselves in a place of desperate need and you have tried but you cannot get through it or overcome your predicament, your relationship, your financial challenge, your inner turmoil, your battle with sin. You can't figure it out on your own. And so the book of Hebrews says, draw near to the throne of grace in your time of need. Those that can use help, come to the throne and you will find help. That's why Jesus came. That's why he died on the cross. That's why he rose again. That's why he is returning one day because you and I need his grace. And so the call today and the call for the next several months will be to trust him, to draw near to him. The book of Hebrews has 13 chapters. It's going to take us at least 21 weeks. That's the plan right now. We'll see how it goes. We'll take a few weeks off at Christmas. So we're looking at like first week of March probably. We'll be diving into the book of Hebrews. But before we get any further, before we look at chapter 1 this week, let, let's take a, just a step back for a moment and look at some background issues, the book of Hebrews. If you've never studied the book of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote it. Unlike many of the New Testament letters, it's not introduced. The author is not introduced. Some have proposed that the Apostle Paul, who wrote a bunch of other New Testament letters, maybe he also wrote Hebrews. But if you look at the style and the content of the letter, it's, it's very different from the way Paul normally writes. Furthermore, in chapter 2, the author of Hebrews actually says that he received the gospel secondhand. He received it from an eyewitness. Doesn't fit with Paul as the author either. So we don't know who wrote it. The Lord ultimately is the one that inspired the pen of whoever wrote it. The letter was probably written sometime in the late 60s in the first century before the temple in Jerusalem was torn down. It was written to a group of first century Jewish Christians, Christians that had a Jewish background, hence the title Hebrews, right? Hebrews stands out amongst all the other books in the New Testament. It's got this really high literary style. It uses a very polished Greek language. The author lays out this highly persuasive argument and he uses beautiful imagery and complex comparisons and these long eloquent sentences and and all of these Old Testament proofs. It's a great work of literature. The book of Hebrews ends like a letter, but it reads more like a sermon. And the author is building his case. He's grounding his arguments in rigorous theology and persuasive examples. Over 35 times he's going to quote from the Old Testament to back up and to prove his argument. 
He himself refers to it at the end as a word of exhortation. He's exhorting the readers, urging the readers, calling the readers. See, it's all done. All of this eloquent, complex theological reasoning is done with the heart of a pastor. And we're going to hear that as we go along this fall. The heart of a pastor appealing to these people that he dearly loves, that he is deeply concerned about, and that he desperately longs to be with. One of the biggest central themes of the book of Hebrews is is the supremacy of Christ. Over 25 times we're going to read how Jesus is better, Jesus is greater, Jesus is more than, Jesus is superior. And he's going to again and again compare Jesus to all these things in the old covenant. And Hebrews, the book of Hebrews will show us that Jesus is better than the angels. He's superior to Father Abraham and Moses. He is more excellent than the law and the old covenant. He is greater than all of the priests and the sacrifices. He is more glorious than Jerusalem and the entire promised land. But all of this lofty language and this picture that we'll see of Jesus, it's not just a theological exercise. The author of Hebrews is not just having some playground standoff to prove that Jesus is superior It's all, again, driven by this very deep, very personal pastoral concern because here's the thing. These Hebrew Christians had converted to Christ. They are active in the church, but they are now feeling pulled back. Many of them are feeling pulled back into the traditions and the rules of the Jewish faith, and their faith is being threatened. And they're facing intense persecution because they've claimed Jesus as their Savior. And many of them are being mistreated we'll read about their property has been taken many of them have even been imprisoned and and as i hope you can understand they are now feeling tempted they're feeling tempted because of this persecution because of the stability of judaism they're being tempted to walk away from the christian church and to return to the stability and the history and the comfort of judaism see at the time judaism had a established reputation Even in the Roman society, it had had a place of privilege. Christianity was this new thing. It was unproven. It It was dangerous to be a Christian. And so the author is going to warn them five different times. There's these challenging warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Well, he will warn them, don't walk away. Don't turn away from your Savior Jesus. And the letter is filled with these appeals to hold on to the faith. There's this phrase in in chapter 6 where Jesus is called the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. The author of Hebrews says, "Don't, don't untether yourself from the anchor. Jesus is the anchor to your soul. And yes, there's all of this going on in the world around you and all this pressure and distraction and discouragement and temptation and persecution. But let Jesus be your anchor. Hold on to the anchor of your soul. And so he reminds them again and again, Jesus is better. He's better. He's greater. He's more superior than anything else that could pull you away from him. And so draw near. He reminds them, draw near. Don't walk away. Draw near to that throne of grace. And I believe this is a needed reminder for each of us as well. A needed reminder. So we're going to jump in this morning into chapter 1. We're going to cover all of chapter 1 this morning. I'm just going to read, to begin with, the first four verses. And look, if you're new to Living Hope or if you've been at the beach all summer, let me remind you, I would love for you to have a Bible in front of you when you're here on Sunday mornings and we're unpacking the Word together. And, and here's why. I'm, I'm not trying to be difficult or, or I'm not trying to be like your dad. But if you have a physical Bible... Or you can grab one of our scripture journals. We have, uh, are they still on the back table? 
Yes, we got a bunch of scripture journals on the back table. Anybody got one that they could hold up? Who's got one of those green? Yeah, they, look at you, bunch of you, well done. So we have these little scripture journals, okay, with the Hebrews on one side, blank page for notes on the other side. So if you don't want to bring your Bible to church, grab a scripture journal. As a last resort, pull it up on your phone. But here's the thing. When I, when I, when I speak to you, when Pastor Matt and I preach you, we're, we're preaching as though you are looking at the words in front of you. And so I'm just saying it'll be helpful. It'll make, what I'm saying will make a lot more sense if you're able to follow along, okay? So just word of encouragement. All right, so here's the word of God, Hebrews chapter one. Let's just look at the first four verses to begin with. The word says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs." The letter, the sermon begins this way, long ago in the past, in a far, far away land, no, long ago God spoke to his people through prophets, right? These people that spoke the word of God, their words were always true, but the implication is that the word of God came in bits and pieces through the prophets, right? Through many different people, many different times, many different ways, it was like this incomplete, like the word of God dribbling out over time. But verse 2 says, but when the Son of God appeared in these last days, God has spoken to us through his Son. And not only do we have truth like we had with the prophets, but through the Son, God himself comes to earth in flesh, the truth, God himself manifested to us. See, now what we have in the life and the ministry of Jesus is the message of God not only spoken loud, but we have the word of God become flesh. The heart of God has come alive. The full and final revelation of God comes to earth in Jesus the Son. And so verse 2 continues to say, through the Son, God has created the whole world. Did you know that? That Jesus, the Son, who's been existent since all of eternity, was there at creation the instrument of God's creation. The Son, because He's creator of all things, is appointed to be heir of all things, verse 2 says. That means at the end of the age, Jesus is coming back and God the Father is going to make all things new. There'll be a new heaven, a new earth, a new creation where God's people will dwell in goodness and in purity. And Jesus the Son says will inherit it all. He'll be king over the new creation at the end of time. It's all going to belong to him because he's Savior and he's Lord. Verse 3 goes on with this beautiful phrase that says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Okay, God's glory is like the fullness of his beauty. If you had to pick a word to describe the fullness and all of God's power and greatness and love and mercy and wisdom, it would be glory. The original word in Hebrew means the weight, the heaviness of God. Jesus is the radiance of this glory. See, God the Son, he admits, he radiates the full glory of his Father. Now keep in mind, it doesn't say that Jesus reflects the glory of his Father. Reflecting the glory of God is actually what you and I do. God created humanity in his image. 
That means we are created to reflect God's glory. And so we can love and we can create and we have a certain degree of power and, and we can reflect and represent God on earth, but we only, we only reflect the glory of God, right? Like the moon has no light in and of itself, but the brightness of the moon on a, on a dark night is a reflection of the sun, right? So human beings, you and I created male and female in his image. We reflect the glory of God, but Jesus actually radiates the glory of God, just like the sun radiates light. You see the difference? Because Jesus, the sun, actually is God, actually is divine. And so he radiates the glory of God. He can do this because he's not just a mere image. Jesus, though fully human in form, was also fully divine. He was not a mere image of God. He is and was God himself. The exact imprint, it says there in verse 3. The exact impression of God's nature. See, Jesus in the flesh fully radiates God's divinity because he was and is God himself. He's the full image of the invisible God. See, Christians understand God as a, as a trinity, a tri-unity, meaning there's unity in God and there's threeness in God. And so we, we understand God as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One being with one nature that's manifested in three persons. These three persons of, of God are identical in their divine nature, in their substance, in their attributes, but they're distinct persons with a distinct role. Each, each fully God. And so Jesus, when he was on earth, and he was teaching his disciples about his relationship with God the Father, he would say to them, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Jesus would also say, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. There's, there's unity. There's oneness. Look back at verse, at verse 3. Verse 3 continues. It says that not only did the Son create the universe, not only did the Son, will the Son inherit the universe, but He upholds the whole universe through the word of His power as God. This, this is amazing. Listen, the universe is not just spinning on its own. Right now, God is actively upholding and sustaining the orbits of the planets. God is, is upholding the gravitational pull that's keeping you in your seat. The light that is right now pouring out of the sun, the rain that is right now dumping down from those clouds is the direct hand of God. The very beat of your heart right now, every beat, every molecule is being sustained by God. Because Jesus, the exact imprint of God's nature, the radiance of God's full glory, is sustaining you, sustaining his universe. And to know this Son, to know this Savior, is to know God Himself. To know Jesus Christ is to know your Creator. And so as we draw near to know Jesus, we, we know God Himself. Now, again, re remember what's going on. Remember why this letter is being written. You guys want to learn a fancy theological word? All the books in the Bible are occasional. Okay? That means that they were all written for a specific occasion. That's what theologians say. So there's no book of the Bible that, that God was just like dropped down or just like knocked some guy out and while he was asleep he wrote it for no reason. Like there was something going on 
that an author filled with the Holy Spirit was concerned for people or concerned to preserve history or to record prophecy or, or write a letter, there's an occasion. And here's the occasion. I've already told you. The Hebrews are in trouble. Their faith is wavering. And so the author writes, calling out to them, urging them, reminding them, hold on, draw near. And, and the first four verses, he's saying this, don't you see how magnificent the Son of God is? Don't you see how much glory he radiates? Why on earth would you ever return to Judaism? Why would you return to a system, a system that depends on your own efforts, on your own obedience to earn your eternal life when the Son of God has come? Not only has he come, but he is seated on the throne in victory. That means he's already done the work. He's seated, he's seated down because it's accomplished. It's finished. The devil has been defeated. Death has been defeated. Your sin has been overcome. Why return to a, a man-made institution when you can come to the throne of grace? Draw near. Draw near and find the grace. Find the help that you need. Now look, here's the thing. Most of us, so far as I know, are not in any real danger of returning to Judaism or going to Judaism to begin with, right? But I think there's plenty, amen, there's plenty in this world that would draw us away from Christ. It might not be Judaism, but there's loads of other things, loads of other pressures, loads of other things that threaten us. The comfort of wealth and materialism is often something that draws our hearts, draws our attention away from full dedication to Christ. The pressures... The pressures of conforming that seem to be getting more intense by the moment. The pressures of conforming to the culture's view of sexuality and gender and identity and morality. And maybe that draws your heart or maybe that pressures you to give in. Politics and the appeal to take a side on every issue, every candidate. Take, not only take a side, but make that your ideology, make that your, your, your life's devotion, the battle of politics. How about the pleasures of sin? And, and sin does provide temporary pleasure, does provide temporary relief. Anybody who tells you otherwise has never tried sinning, right? There's a certain level of comfort, but it's a fleeting, temporary pleasure. But maybe that or other things draw, distract call you away from the throne of grace. And so we need to be reminded in the same way that the Hebrews did that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than any of those things that would call your attention. He is the superior son. He's better than anything in a man-centered religion. He's better than anything in a pleasure-centered world that could possibly pull you away from him. And so in the midst of whatever is threatening your faith this morning, in the midst of whatever dangers you are facing, whether they be internal, personal, or external, public, be reassured. Be reassured that Jesus is sitting on the throne. And I pray that that comforts you, and I pray that that gives you confidence to draw near, to come to him, and to find grace in time of need. To have peace that he is sitting and he is ruling and he is reigning in victory and to have confidence. Again, we were reminded of this verse from chapter 4. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, draw near this morning. Draw near with confidence to the finished work of Christ. Go to him 
in prayer, read his word, soak in the truth of scripture to ground you, ask his spirit to fill you, find mercy in your time of need. I spoke with a woman a few weeks ago in the midst of a very, very difficult trial. She was just in, in tears and anguish as we spoke on the phone. And I asked her about her relationship with the Lord. She said, I, I pray every day. I said, but, but are you in the word? Because see, when the devil is attacking you, when life is falling around, around you, when your family seems to be falling apart, it's good and right to draw near the throne of grace and, and pray. But to, but to have the word of God fill you with truth, remind you of what's true, to push out the lies of the enemy, to, 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 to remind you of the hope of Christ who died for you, who rose again for you, draw near to the throne of grace. Find him in the word. Find him in worship on Sundays. Find him as you connect in community together. This superior son that will help you in your time of need, who is, by the way, far superior to the angels. Look at verse 3 and 4. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. See, the primary work that Jesus came to earth to do was to rescue us, to rescue us from sin and death and to bring us into God's presence. And to do that, verse 3 says, he had to make purification for sins. To purify something means you cleanse it of impurities, of, of harm, you, you wash it, you clean it, and the rest of the book is going to go into great detail, right? Chapters 8, 9, and 10 of Hebrews elaborate on, on us being cleansed of our sin and the atonement that Jesus made on the cross. Suffice it to say for now, Jesus came and through his death, you can be clean. You can be free. And for those of you who right now struggle to believe that, who right now are wrestling with your guilt, who are so filled with shame, you pray to God that nobody looks you in the eye on the way out this morning because you're not sure you can handle being looked in the eyes. Some of you that are wrestling with unforgiveness, whether it was something from yesterday or something from your childhood, you cannot believe that the God of the universe would forgive you. And you're not even going to begin to forgive yourself because you can't believe that God would. Friends, the book of Hebrews says that Jesus came, he made purification for sins, and then what? He sat down because the work is finished and you can be forgiven. If your faith is in Christ, you are forgiven. You're washed clean. There is no longer a record of sin, no longer a memory of your wrongs, of what you've said, what you've thought, what you've done. It was all canceled on the cross. And so verse 3 says that once he had sacrificed for sins and he rose back to new life, he sat down on the throne of grace at the right hand of God the Father. I love this, the majesty. The majesty on high. Just, just rest this morning in that finished work. Verse 4 goes on and says, look, as, as Jesus conquered sin and death, as he achieved the salvation of his people, Jesus demonstrated, he validated that he is far better, far superior to even the angels. And the author says, you can see this just by looking at his name. He's called Son of God. Jesus has always been Son, but when he came to earth and took on flesh and became incarnate, when he, when he accomplished redemption through his death and resurrection, he proved, he proved that he was Son of God. And, and the angels... They're just servants of God, but Jesus is the Son of God. And his name as Son of God encapsulates 
his essence as God himself, his role as Savior, his intimate relationship with Father, Father and Son in connection together, and the inheritance that the Son has. The one who radiates the glory of God, who is the exact imprint of God's nature. And his name, Son, is more excellent than the angels. That the whole first chapter of Hebrews is leading up to this. Jesus is better than angels. And you're like, yeah, I sort of knew that before I came in this morning. Bear with me. All right, you guys, you guys I, I'm not good with math. Pastor Matt is not either. Thank God for Chris Lewis, our treasurer, and the deacons. But here is a mathematical equation to summarize Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus is better than angels, okay? Jot that down. Don't forget that. Who are angels? Chapter 2 is going to go on to explain that angels have this high and exalted place in God's kingdom. They're created beings. They have great power and great privilege. They, they in fact, rank above humanity in many regards. But they are created by God for four purposes. Put up those four purposes. First of all, they're worshipers, created by God to praise and honor the triune God. They're warriors sent out by God to, to fight in spiritual battles against evil. They are guardians gone, gone out, sent out by God to protect you and I from physical harm, from spiritual harm. And angels are messengers at times carrying and delivering God's messages to his people. Now remember, there are good angels and there are wicked angels because some angels rebelled and fell away from God's presence and God's goodness and demons can play all those same four roles on behalf of wickedness. Now you say, okay, I get all this, Pastor Tim, but why would the author need to spend a full chapter and actually part of chapter two, we'll see next week, proving that Jesus is superior to angels? Like who would be confused about that? Well, look at it this way. The chapter opened up by saying that God had spoken to us through the Son, right? Well, angels carry messages as well. So if Jesus carries messages and the angels carry messages, is he like the same as an angel? The chapter said that, that Jesus radiates the glory of God. Well, angels show up and they reflect God's glory and people fall out in fear and there's bright glowing lights. And, and so maybe Jesus is just like a really, really good angel reflecting, radiating the glory of God. And so Hebrews needs to make it clear to these first century Christians, no, Jesus is not some exalted angel. He's not some demigod. And, and so he's going to go to great lengths. In fact, the entire rest of the chapter is going to make clear that Jesus is far superior to any angels. Now, now catch this. Here's, here's some background to the letter. In first century Judaism, angels were super important. And so if you were a Christian with a Jewish background in the first century, you might have some confusion and some misunderstanding about the place of angels. There was, you could say, an infatuation with angels in the, the first century children of Israel that followed Yahweh. If you go back and look at the book of Deuteronomy, when Moses went up on the mountain and received the Ten Commandments and the law, Deuteronomy says that angels were involved. It's a little unclear exactly what their role was, but they were there on the mountain when God gave the law to Moses. And so out of that, because the law had a very central place in the first century in, in, in the Jewish people, and angels were involved in giving the law, they, they sort of elevated and exaggerated the role of angels to the point where they, they had sort of legend status. 
right? There was folklore around angels and their role. One sect of Judaism in particular, you've heard of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There was this other group of guys called the Essenes. And the Essenes were like, were like rebels. They withdrew from society. They were misfits. But they particularly had, had these exaggerated, extravagant beliefs about angels. And some people think that the Essenes maybe had influenced these early Christians and were, were convincing them that Jesus may have been just some kind of angel. The New Testament as well confirms and, and recognizes that the law was delivered to Moses by angels, that Moses spoke with angels. In fact, when Paul writes his letter to the Colossians, there was so much confusion about the role of angels that he has to tell those Christians not to worship angels because apparently there were people that were worshiping angels as demigods, as, as intermediaries that could somehow connect them to the one true God. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, no, Jesus is superior. He's not an angel. And so if you look at the rest of the chapter, and we'll look at this quickly, the author is going to give us five different reasons. He's going to quote from seven different passages of the Psalms, and I, I summarize it as, as five different reasons why Jesus is superior. Now, again, most of you are like, I, I'm not struggling with this. Like, there's never been a day when I thought that maybe angels were better than Jesus. Just bear with me for a moment, okay? I'm going to bring it back around, I, I believe, to where we're at in 21st century, okay? But reason number one, Jesus is superior than the angels. Unlike the angels, God is a father to his son Jesus, right? Verse five says, for which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And so in verse five, the author is gonna reference Psalm two and Psalm 89, promises that were originally made to the great King David, king of Israel, and to his offspring that would come after him. And God makes a promise, I will be a father to you and you will be a son to me. Of course, the kings of Israel didn't live as faithful son of God. And so this father-son dynamic that the Psalms talk about is, is really ultimately just foreshadowing. The kings of Israel are foreshadowing the true Savior that would one day come. This great Davidic king who would fulfill the covenant and truly be God's son. See, Jesus in his title and his relationship is clearly superior to the angels because he is the son of God. Secondly, even the angels are commanded to worship the Son. Verse 6, Hebrews chapter 1 says this, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Here the author's referencing Psalm 97, and he's applying it to angels. And angels are magnificent, glorious beings. But even they worship the Son. Even they worship the Son who has the exalted status as firstborn. So how can they be better than him? Thirdly, angels are ultimately only created servants of God. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Referencing here Psalm 104. This Psalm 104 emphasizing the sovereignty of God over creation. And it says that God sends out the winds of the earth as messengers. God uses flames of fire as his ministers to accomplish his purposes. And here, the author of Hebrews quotes from that and references it and says, look, that's just like angels. They're just like the wind. They're just like flames of fire. God sends them here. He sends them there. He uses the angels to accomplish his purposes. They're just his servants. The Son, the Son of God is far superior to any, any wind that would be sent to blow 
something down. If you jump down and look at verse 14 at the very end of the chapter, this reiterates the angel's role as servants. Verse 14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels are just ministering servants. Who do they serve? Did you catch that? This is amazing. Angels are sent out to serve us. They are warriors on our behalf, guardians on our behalf, messengers on our behalf. They're not superior to the Savior Jesus. They're here to serve us. Fourth reason, Jesus is better. The Son is the eternal creator of heaven and earth. Verses 8 through 12 says, But of the Son, the Lord says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And so the author here quotes from Psalm 45 and Psalm 102. Psalm 45 is this royal wedding song of a triumphant king. Again, originally spoken over the kings of, of David and Israel, but only fully understood as belonging to Christ, the true king, who truly is son of God. And here the words are applied to Jesus that he is creator of heaven and earth. He is divine, the divine king sitting on an eternal throne. He's certainly no mere angel. He is unchanging. He's eternal. You change your clothes every day, the scripture says, but not Jesus. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Angels have a beginning. Jesus is eternal. Angels are created. Jesus is creator. And then the fifth reason in verse 13 is that unlike angels, the son sits at the right hand of God in victory. So the, the author is going to quote from Psalm 110. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Returning now to that theme we saw at the beginning of the chapter, one of the central themes of Hebrews, that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. And this beautiful picture, not only is he sitting down, his work completed, his victory accomplished, but it says that his enemies will be his footstool. And the day will come where Jesus will literally prop his feet up on top of Satan and say, that's all you're good for is to put my feet on because I now sit in victory next to my father, defeating the enemy. Five reasons why Jesus is clearer, clearly superior to the angels. Now, again, most of us probably don't even have an awareness that angels are even around, let alone an infatuation, right? Most of us, unlike the first century Jewish Christians, are, are not in any danger of becoming overly infatuated with angels. In fact, I think we could actually probably benefit from a better understanding and a better awareness of the role that angels play in our lives and the role that the demons sometimes play in the world around us. But there are, there are even today, modern people who get caught up in the work of angels and demons. Some falsely believe that, that when you die, you become an angel. The Bible does not teach that. Other people blame every sin or every mistake on the work of a demon. Some people are, are misunderstood. 
But even for those that don't pursue angels, some people seek out other forms of spiritual phenomenon, other intermediaries, or people pursue encounters with, with spirits or contact with the dead, or some people have an infatuation with ghosts or aliens or fairies. What's this all about? I think there's this, this urge in, in, in all of us to be connected to something greater. We, we want to be connected to a spiritual being. We want to, to, to be known and to know a power outside of ourselves, something that's greater than us. But there's something about connecting with an angel or a ghost or a spirit that somehow it feels more achievable, right? It's less intimidating than trying to approach God himself. And so even modern people and pagan people, people with no Christian belief, they want some kind of spiritual experience. God might seem out of reach to them or, or unknown to them. And so it's less intimidating. Just, oh, I'll go for some demigod, some intermediary, something that's a step between me and the divine. That's more attainable. It also gives people the freedom of, of being spiritual without being religious, right? It gives people the ability to somehow try to feel connected to the spirit world without actually having an obligation to submit to the authority of God, right? Because an angel or a spirit, you might get like a little spiritual high from, but you don't have to submit to. But in reality, pursuing anyone or anything other than the one true God is futile. It's a downgrade, and it's a fake hope. Now again, maybe you, maybe your friends and your family are not distracted by angels, not interested in the spirit world, but I think our culture has other forms of exalted intermediaries that we become consumed with, right? And I think we have so elevated at times famous men and women in our society that we, in essence, raise them to the status of demigod. I mean, think about it for a moment. Who is it at the end of the service, if, if the whisper started that so-and-so was out in the parking lot, who is it that would grab your attention? You would forget to go pick up your kids from children's class to go out into the parking lot, right? You would fawn over. You would scramble to shake their hand to get a selfie. And I, I thought about listing a bunch of names, but then I thought I'm either going to be completely out of touch or way too controversial. But there, there, are, there are sports heroes, right? There are entertainment icons, there are social media influences, there are political figures that, that in essence, people may not worship, but they certainly venerate, you would drop everything, you would give everything to go have an experience with this person. Beyond just those cultural icons, what about even in the church, right? I mean, the Roman Catholics and the Orthodox Christians have their saints, but, but Protestants, we have our heroes as well. Right? We have Christian leaders that we put on a pedestal that we at times venerate. But here's, here's the message. Here's, here's where we're coming to, friends, as we wrap up. Why would you spend even one ounce of energy, even one moment of your day, pursuing an encounter with a cultural icon or with an angel or with a spirit or with a supposed demigod when you can know the Son of God? You can know the Son of God, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of the very nature of God. And we can and should appreciate the roles that angels play in God's kingdom. But our attention, our allegiance, and certainly our worship goes to Jesus and Jesus only. Amen? And so don't settle for the light that's reflecting off the moon when you can have the very sun itself radiating deeply, personally, intimately into your heart. Don't reach for something that's second best. Don't reach for someone that's a pale comparison to the true king. 
Center your life on this superior son. Center your life on God himself. Friends, the worship team is coming back up. I I know that was a long introduction this morning. But let me just call you and remind you back to this simple truth. Draw near. Draw near this, this morning, this week, and this life that you've been given. Draw near to the Son of God. Draw near to this throne of grace that he is seated on. And as we've heard again and again this morning from Hebrews 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Reach for the Son. He is far superior than anyone, than anything else that could grab your attention. Let's stand together and close. Fathers, we prepare to sing this song with these deep, heavy words of of Hebrews in our hearts. We ask you to draw near to us. Lord, the scriptures say that when we draw near to you, you draw near to us, but we know that that you, you were the one who first drew near to us. You were the one who first sent this son to us. Draw near to us in worship as we give ourselves to you, as we sing this song, as we close together in this song of prayer. Grab our hearts, grab our attention. Keep our heads and our hearts and our eyes away from anything else in this world that would steal our attention, that would pull us away from you. We need your grace. Hear us and fill us, we ask in Jesus' name.